Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nation's class on Proverbs. It is Sunday, February 13th, 2011. My name is Doug Taylor. And tonight I'd like to start with a couple of terms that we use a lot uh, in Proverbs and we use them in everyday life. And it bears some digging in to just make sure that we're very clear and understand what those terms mean. And the terms are good and evil. Uh, we hear those all the time. If we start with, for example, good, you know, we hear people say that a person should do good. But the question is, well, what does that really mean? And how do we actually go about doing that? And so in tackling this question, perhaps we should rephrase it a different way. If a tiger is in its element, and it's designed to hunt other animals. And if a giraffe is meant to be a herbivorous animal that can run fast and reach a plant diet that's high off the ground, and if an anteater is designed to live in a particular climate and eat ants, then what is the design of man? What is he intended to do? And what distinguishes him from the animals? Good evening, Ross. Welcome. Or we could take a look at a domestic dog, you know, a black Labrador, or a terrier, you know, pets that many people have running around the house. And you feed the dog, you scratch his ears, you take him for a walk, maybe you throw him a stick, and he's happy. He's fulfilled. And other animals are like that too. When they're living in their normal environment, and their basic needs are fulfilled, they're content. So what does that mean for man? What's his normal environment? And what's his purpose such that when he fulfills it, it brings him the greatest satisfaction? And I'll suggest that it is none of the things that people usually think of when they think of success. It's not a fast car new house, a yacht in the Bahamas. It's not an appearance on Oprah. I mean, people do get those things, but they're still not fulfilled. Um, they just keep looking for more. And we've all seen cases of people who are extremely wealthy, who have lots of things. You read about these people in the news, you know, and you can tell based on the way they act and the things they say, they're not happy and satisfied. So those things they have aren't fulfilling whatever it is that is going to make man content. <clears throat> and so I'll suggest that what sets man apart from the animals is his ability to think abstractly. In terms of environmental factors, man isn't particularly well designed for survival, at least not in the sense that the animals are. Uh, People can't run that fast. They can't instinctively hunt. Um, they have no built-in camouflage. Uh, there's lots of animals that can run faster, lots of animals that can hunt better, uh, lots of animals that blend in better. But man does have the ability to think and be involved in the world of ideas. And that is the distinguishing factor of man. So... I will submit for your consideration that the ultimate purpose of man, people ask, well, what am I here for? What's my purpose? 
that the ultimate purpose of man and the real good for man is to be involved in the world of ideas and the world of learning. And any other approach to life is going to ultimately resort in some type, or excuse me, result in some type of conflict or frustration. Why? Because in order to function optimally, an organism has to function in accordance with its purpose, with its design. And man was designed by his creator to think and to be involved in the world of thought and ideas. And that also helps explain to us why fame, fortune, and power do not bring happiness. And we see that all around us. We see people with fame or some of the most unhappy people on the earth. And, you know, people with lots of money the same way. And power? Well, does that bring satisfaction? Ask yourself if you know any person in a position of significant power who is happy and peaceful and content. I'll submit that it's very hard to find an example. Rather, we often see that power becomes destructive, ultimately resulting in the demise of those who have it. So we've got a situation, and uh, Mona, you, you hit it right there on cognitive reasoning, where using those thought processes that we have is what is really going to give us an enormous amount of satisfaction. So if man is intended to be involved in the world of thought, in the world of ideas, in the world of learning, then what areas should he explore? Well, one way to look at that is if we define good to be anything in accordance with the will of the creator, which makes sense because he's the one who created everything, then it would make sense that the good one should explore should be that which is in accordance with the will of the creator. And how do we find that? We find that through the study of Torah. After all, the Torah is, if you will, God's instruction manual to man for life. Now, what's unique here is that um, many people, uh, I suspect, look upon the commandments of the Torah and the restrictions that the Torah imposes on us, whether we're Jews or non-Jews, as just that, restrictions. In other words, we really think that the good is all the stuff we can't do, or we're not allowed to do. But if we stop and think about it, that's kind of a crazy notion. Why would God say, in essence, yes, I built this world with lots of good things in it, but I just want to make life difficult for you, so I'm going to put up lots of frustrating restrictions around you that have no real benefit other than to make your life difficult. I mean, that's really kind of an absurd thing. Can you imagine a parent doing that to their child intentionally? I mean, no caring parent would ever do such a thing. Yes, they might put up restrictions and rules for the child to follow, but it would be for the child's own good, often because the child can't see what's truly good for himself or herself while the parents can. They have a bigger perspective. They don't put up those rules and fences because they just want to purposely frustrate the child. You know, I, I don't know of anybody that wakes up as a parent one morning and says, let me see. What else could I do to make Johnny's life really miserable today? 
I mean, that's just not the way that a parent would operate. <clears throat> so in the same way, God gave us the Torah uh, as an instruction manual for life. And it's designed, as we've discussed before, to give us the best life here, right now. This life in a very practical way, uh, which is what we study about in Proverbs. It talks about the challenges and the situations and the personalities and the problems that we're going to face in our everyday life. It's not a pie in the sky, someday when I'm in heaven, everything is going to be wonderful kind of philosophy. Uh, but it, it's Torah's talking about where we actually are right now. Uh, the, the very practical, I have to earn a living and feed my family and deal with my challenges kind of life that we all face. There is a concept, as all of you know, of a life after this one in the Torah, and it's generally referred to as the world to come. But what's very interesting to note is that if you read the Torah carefully, all five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, there is virtually no mention of the world to come. The focus in Torah is about this life, not the next one, because this is where we are now. This is the arena in which we have to work out our problems and our character flaws and increase our understanding. This is the arena in which we can perfect ourselves. And while the world to come is a whole abstract study in itself and is beyond the scope of uh, what I wanted to cover in this class, it is fascinating to know that the actions that we take to live the Torah life, the best life we can have today on this planet, are also the same actions that give us the best possible life in the world to come. So to summarize the good, when we talk about good and evil, the good is being involved in doing the will of the creator. Now, the will of the creator, according to Torah, is that we be involved in studying and learning his Torah and that we live in the world of reality. And there are other things we learn too. I mean, we learn math and physics and medicine and science and technology and environmental issues and winds and weather and all kinds of different things that uh, add to our learning. And when we look out at the physical world and, and the environment and sciences and astronomy and down to the molecular biology systems of our bodies, clear up to the astronomical systems and solar systems, we see the beauty of God's creation. And yes, Mona, this is our present job, is to be involved in that process. And so Psalms 1 summarizes this process very beautifully by describing what a successful person is. And it says, whose delight is in the Torah of the Lord, and in his Torah he meditates day and night. In other words, the successful person is constantly involved in the world of learning. He's constantly, or she is constantly thinking about ideas of Torah during the day and at night. And that is the real good for man. Now, some people think that good is simply being nice to everyone. You know, the idea is that if I help people, ah, oh, that's a good thing. But the question we'd have to ask is, is that a carefully developed concept that's been rationally tested, or is that just kind of a nice emotional idea that, you know, feels good? So for example, if we say that helping everyone and being kind to them is a good thing, well, would we help an Adolf Hitler? 
I mean, would it have been a good thing to have been kind to him and helped him? So some of the things that that float around in the world uh, as platitudes can really fall apart when you start digging into them and analyzing them. And they sound great in theory until we start asking questions on them. Um, and relying on our emotions to determine what the good is can sometimes result in exactly the opposite uh, because we're not seeing reality and we're not operating within it. So that brings us then to the question about evil. What's evil? Good and evil. Evil is dastardly villains. Evil is every uh, horrible power in, you know, Stephen King novels. It's, uh, you know, it, it the word itself just brings up all these drippingly awful kind of visions. But here's a very interesting definition, and we've talked about it, I think, before in this, this class, one that flies in the face of all those popular concepts of evil. Um, the Torah scholar Sajigyan said that evil is ignorance. Now think about that for a minute. Evil is ignorance. In other words, if a person is operating under ideas or notions that are, that are not in accordance with reality, then one is committing evil. And that definition has some very interesting consequences. For example, take someone in the world who everyone thinks is a saint. Let's say that person is known for doing great acts of kindness for people. But at the same time, the person is telling them, those people, telling them over that particular person's brand of religious ideas, which aren't in accordance with the truth, although the person happens to think they are. Now, while the act of actually helping the people or doing kindness to them may be a laudable act, the act of, you know, talking them into or convincing them of a particular type of religious idea that isn't correct would be evil under Sajigan's definition. In our society, I'd suggest that we often tend to think of evil in heinous terms, like a horrific crime or mass murder or something like that. And certainly those acts would qualify there, but how many people would think that operating under an incorrect religious idea is evil? Uh, or using an incorrect approach to life? I mean, we sort of live in a society that sometimes thinks, well, you know, there's a lot of different viewpoints out there, and it's, it's whatever works for you. Well, some of those ideas are mutually exclusive, and they cannot all be correct. Uh, so this definition gives us a much more clear-cut approach to identifying evil, and the good, the study of Torah and the, and the study of the world of reality, is the antidote for that. So now let's go back to Psalms 1 and see if we can put this together. The psalm reads, Happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scorners, but whose delight is in the Torah of the Lord, and in his Torah he meditates day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit in its season. Its leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. 
So interestingly, we see that there are three types of people that the successful man avoids that are identified in this psalm. So let's look at, at each one. The first is that it says he did not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Okay. So who's a wicked person? Sophorno says that these are people who are involved all of their days with gathering money. And most of their striving in life is focused on that. A person like that is called a wicked person. Now, we could ask, well, if that's the definition of wicked, what about people like tyrants? I mean, and how did Sephorno get the idea of gathering money from the verse? The answer centers around the word counsel or advice. It says he did not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not follow the counsel or advice of the wicked. Advice means that I have a plan. So the wicked person in this verse is giving advice or helping a person to achieve a plan. And why would a wicked, wicked person's plans be sorry, what would a wicked person's plans be focused around? They'd be focused around really one of two things I'll suggest, making money or controlling people. Uh, and if you put them together, they have one quality of the desire for money and the desire to control people. And that one quality is power. Now, it's true that most of us have some type of a desire for power, but it's not necessarily our main striving. It's not where we put all our energy. But for the wicked person, it is. That's where they're really focused. That's what their primary thing is. So the, the successful person in this psalm doesn't walk in the counsel of those people, does not take the advice of them. The second part says that he does not stand in the way of sinners. Now, Sephorno says that the sinful are the people who are drawn after the pleasures and desires that are harmful. These are people who you read about in the news who are out for a life of pleasure. I mean, you could say that a hedonist falls into that category. Uh, if you're familiar with the story of Esther, King Ahasuerus was this type of person you know, big, uh, long feasts. I mean, he was a pleasure-seeking guy, uh, someone who's drawn to the physical pleasures. And the ultimate sinner is one who is committed to that lifestyle. Uh, King Ahasuerus, you may recall, his wife didn't come when he wanted her to come, so he had her killed. I mean, the guy acted like a spoiled brat. And people like this constantly move in the direction of spoiled, of wanting to get their way. A spoiled brat can never be happy. They can't deal with a problem in life. They just get upset or they go crazy. That's the life of the sinner, the one who is focusing their attention on that lifestyle of the pleasures and desires. And, so, and you can see how this type of person is different from the wicked. The wicked are making plans for power. The sinner in this context is all about getting pleasure for himself. And then there's the third clause in this psalm. He doesn't sit in the seat of the scorners. So what's a scorner? The Radak says that 
these people are cunning. They're intelligent, although they're not wise. They're haughty, and they speak evil about people. They place confusion and uh, faults around. They reveal secrets. Uh, The scorner is a person who puts all of his energy into putting down people and things. You probably met this kind of person. They can find fault in everything and everybody. They've got something negative to say about every person and every situation. The scorner's commitment is to destroy anything and everything around him. It's kind of revolution for revolution's sake. It's all for the purpose of tearing down, not for anything positive. And it's also all verbal. The scorner doesn't really accomplish anything, just sits and verbally tears everything down. An example of this type of person might be... um, you know, many years ago, an early communist in the United States who would just sit around and talk about how bad the government was. Um, and, and we see this in certain groups and people today, that their message is all about how bad everything is. And their aim isn't really to put something positive in its place. It's just to tear something down. Okay, and there's a real difference uh, you know, between wanting to do something that's different than the status quo versus just wanting to rip the status quo apart. And notice that this type of person is different from the first two, different from the wicked person, different from the sinner. What does this third person, the scorner, gain? He gets a certain pleasure that he makes himself feel great by putting other people down. It's a complete illusion in his own mind. He's just fooling himself. But it gives him this imaginary pleasure that I'm better than everybody else and you know I put everything down. So I distance myself from it. Note, interestingly, that there are two ways of feeling great. You can feel great either by doing something positive or you can feel great by putting others down. And the Redox says that if a person turns from the path of evil and does not do good, then the person hasn't completed any work, and you can't say that he's happy. In other words, happiness is not just undoing the bad, but a person's energy needs to be applied to the search for truth and reality. He should study, as the psalm indicates, day and night, meaning all of his energy is focused into Torah. Uh, or, you know, as much as he is, you know, capable of doing. Different people have different uh, abilities to do that. There are people who can sit and learn 14 hours a day. There are people who, you know, they can learn for an hour a day, and that's the most they can do, you know, because their skills and talents or their psyche or whatever is made up differently. Uh, But the evil person is putting all of their energy into some fantasy. The righteous person is putting all of their energy into the world of truth and reality and ordering their life according to that system. So, let's review again those three verses from Psalms 1. Happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scorners, but whose delight is in the Torah of the Lord, and in his Torah he meditates day and night. So I'm not going down those other paths. 
but I'm going down the path of focusing on truth and reality. And then it reads, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. Its leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Now, two more points. There's a very interesting uh, sequence in this particular um, verse that says, happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scorners. One of the commentators, and I do not recall which, pointed out that that's the sequence that gets you pulled in. That first you walk by an evil person, and then you stop and stand there and listen, and then pretty soon you sit down with them. So the idea is to avoid that in the first place, which, by the way, is one of the reasons why it is very important who you hang out with and who you spend time with and, you know, uh, where that time is, is uh, that you are involved with other people, where that time is actually spent. Then one more point on this. When it says whose delight is in the Torah of the Lord, and in his Torah he meditates day and night. What does it mean by his Torah? That's a lowercase h, not a, not a capital H. It's a lowercase h, his Torah. And wouldn't it be God's Torah? And the great scholar and commentator Rashi comments that the psalm first refers to it as the Torah of the Lord. When it says, but whose delight is in the Torah of the Lord. And then it says, and in his Torah, he meditates day and night. Now, how did it go from the Torah of the Lord to being mine? And Rashi says, first it speaks of it as the Torah of the Lord, but after a student works at studying and understanding it, then it is as if it had become his own. In other words, the ideas become real to him and it becomes his own, something that belongs to him. He has worked through, figured out, looked at the ideas, come at it every possible way and thrashed through that idea until he owns it. And then it becomes his Torah that he's meditating in day and night. And that's why then it's referred to his Torah uh, in, in that particular section. Okay, that's a lot to cover, but I wanted to get some clarity on the terms good and evil because we use those a lot, and I think it's important to uh, zero in on what we're really meaning with those. Any questions uh, on any of this? In that case, we'll move on with our study of Proverbs. And we're continuing on with Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 20. And the verse reads, One with a perverse heart will not find goodness, and one duplicitous with his tongue will fall into evil. One with a perverse, art scroll uses the word confused, one with a perverse heart will not find goodness, and one duplicitous with his tongue will fall into evil. 
So as we normally do with these, let's start with what are the questions? What questions could we ask around that verse? Proverbs 17, 20. One with a perverse heart will not find goodness, and one duplicitous with his tongue will fall into evil. What kinds of questions pop up when we think about or hear that verse? Okay, Linda, thank you. What does duplicitous mean here? How, how is one duplicitous with his tongue? Okay, and we can maybe also ask on the first half, what's a perverse heart? Uh, or our art scroll translates it as a confused heart. Yes, Linda, what is perverse? And it says, one with a perverse heart will not find goodness. What's goodness here? Uh, I mean, are we talking about something external? Are we talking about an internal state of mind? And, and why will the person with a perverse heart not find that? What's, how does that work? Uh, and why does someone who is duplicitous with his tongue fall into evil? And then our, I suppose, classic question, what's the first half have to do with the second half? Why is King Solomon pulling up these two particular things uh, in this verse? So, as we've discussed before, generally, the word heart in the context of Mishle, as I understand it, means your mind. Uh, that when King Solomon wrote this book, that's what they meant when they used heart. And we tend to use heart more as an emotional term these days, but then it was used uh, in, in terms of the mind. So we're talking about intellectual aspects of the person. So if we're talking about their intellect or their, their intellectual mind, a confused or perverse heart would be one uh, that it would be a confused or perverse mind would be one that is it's either unable to grasp concepts of wisdom or someone who chooses to use those concepts in twisted ways, uh, ways that won't be in line with reality. In other words, we're, if we're talking about the mind here, the person's intellectual faculty, and the verse is saying that the intellectual faculty is perverse or confused, then it has that mind has to be producing results, which we could call conclusions or plans or whatever, that are flawed. Because if the mind was operating properly, you should get accurate results. And that a mind that is not operating properly can't be producing accurate results. So what happens when you don't get accurate results? Well, you get consequences that are not what you would hope for. If you carefully plan an event, say a business deal or a party with friends, or your Torah learning for the next year, or you know how you're going to afford a, a different house, and your plan is flawed, then the plan is likely not going to work unless you get really, really lucky. And more likely, it's going to turn out negatively. Now, if you do that consistently, that is, you use your mind in a flawed way 
it's a virtual certainty that you're going to get negative consequences as a result. Uh, because the, the, you know, the probability of luck is not going to necessarily um, you know, come in your favor all the time if your plans are flawed because you're not using your mind appropriately. Now, the verse says that a person with a perverse heart will not find goodness. I will submit that finding goodness means that I get pleasant consequences in life. My plans work out, people are happy with me, I'm reasonably successful in my business dealings, um, my kids are, you know, grow up to be uh, good thinkers themselves, uh, whatever it might be, I'm getting pleasant consequences. Uh, and that I would submit is what uh, is suggested here with find goodness. So the first half of the verse seems to be saying that the owner of a flawed mind is not going to find good things in his life. And that will stem from the fact that he's using his thinking faculties incorrectly. Now, what about the second half? The second half of the verse says, one duplicitous with his tongue will fall into evil. Now, we've defined in the past that duplicitous means that the person can't be trusted. They're deceitful. They'll say one thing and do another. So we know that there are those kinds of people and that we have to be on the lookout for them. Because we don't want to, you know, get caught by their duplicitousness. Now, what does fall into evil mean? I'll suggest that it means that the person will, because of his duplicitous tongue, end up in evil situations which could take one of two forms. First of all, evil is done to him. Something untoward, something, a, a consequence that he's not going to like. As a result of his duplicitous actions, person's going to make enemies. It's almost guaranteed. Uh, because people will figure out, you know, this guy says one thing and does another. So he's going to gain a reputation as an untrustworthy person. And the enemies that he makes will eventually bring evil back to him as revenge or payback for what he's done to them through his duplicitousness. You know, you might get away with that once or twice, but sooner or later, you know, it's going to catch up with you. Uh, and, you know, if you... If you uh, cross one person, eh, they may not be the fighter type and they may let it go. You cross two people, eh, not so good. You cross dozens and sooner or later one of those people is very likely to come back at you one way or another. So the person who is duplicitous could fall into evil uh, because of the negative consequences he will get from other people as a result of his duplicitous actions. The other possibility is that he himself falls into doing further evil. And that would come about because he's already tried to bend reality his way by being duplicitous in the first place. In other words, he's trying to make things come out a certain way that he wants without being honest about it. And once a person starts down that path, 
he started to convince his mind that it's acceptable to work that way. So he does it again and again, perhaps the same way, perhaps, you know, in some other way. But the very fact that he is initially successful at being duplicitous serves to convince him and train his mind that duplicitousness is a viable course of action. So he repeats it again and again and again, and he keeps falling into evil. Okay, And as we just discussed, Sajigyan's definition of evil, which is that evil is ignorance, the duplicitous man increases his ignorance because each act of duplicity pulls him farther and farther and farther from reality, and thus he falls into evil. Yes, Mone, he is manipulative, absolutely. Okay, let me pause here for questions before we, uh, before we go any further. Questions so far? Okay, now that gets us to the end of the verse. And there's just one thing that further bothered me about the verse. And it's this. It's, why doesn't the first half just say that the guy is duplicitous? Because we know what that means. Why did King Solomon say duplicitous with his tongue? I mean, duplicitous is duplicitous. So why does he add the part about the tongue in there? And and it's not that the verse isn't true just the way we explained it. It's just that I'm curious as to whether there's something else to be learned from the fact that King Solomon added that part about the tongue. And so I'd like to suggest a possible explanation. A person who is duplicitous in his actions might be able to do it quietly or secretly without being found out. In other words, he's duplicitous in his actions, in the actual actions that he takes. And if he was clever enough at that, he might get away with it, at least for a while. But if a person is duplicitous with his tongue, that is, he spoke to someone else as part of the process, then it seems that the duplicitousness is sure to come out and be known eventually, because people know what he said. Then, if he does something differently, there's already his verbal commitment that's on the table, so to speak. And people will, the people involved will realize the guy's duplicitous. And he'll thus fall into evil at the result of their vengeful hands. So, if it's just actions, maybe people aren't seeing both sides of the equation. In other words, I'm doing one thing here, but another thing there, but both sides aren't aware of it. And so nobody finds out, or at least for a while, about the duplicitousness. But if I say something to somebody, you know, um, I make a, an oral contract or I promise to uh, sell them something or, you know, promise to deliver something or something, and then I turn around and do something different, you know. Uh, if, if I were in high school and I promise, you know, Mary Sue that I'll take her to the, uh, uh, the big dance, and then I turn around and I ask Phyllis, okay, uh, Mary Sue's going to figure out that I'm duplicitous. 
because she's going to figure out sooner or later because I said something to her and now my commitment is on the table. The second part of our interpretation is also true about bringing evil upon oneself when we talk about the tongue, because if the person speaks it, it becomes more real to him. In other words, um, uh, when you think something, that's one thing. When you say it out loud, it becomes more real. And so if the person is being duplicitous with his tongue, that is, he is saying stuff and his mind is getting, you know, the idea um, that he can bend reality by being duplicitous, it's becoming more real to him by the fact that it is said out loud. So the damage to him is even greater than if he just thought it because speech brings thought closer to reality. It's one thing to think something in our mind. It's another thing to say it out loud. So he's reinforcing his incorrect idea of reality even more by speaking it out loud. Uh, Mona, you've said, wasn't Esau a mouth pleaser? Yes, that is my understanding. He spoke words to his father that were the kind of words that, you know, made his father think he was living his life one way, and then he went out and his actions were different, you know, than his, than his words. So, very good point. So, how do the two halves of the verse fit together? Well, interestingly, and again, let me read the verse. One with a perverse heart will not find goodness, and one duplicitous with his tongue will fall into evil. They don't appear to be a contrast. This doesn't appear to be a good evil or righteous wicked, you know, or up-down kind of thing. Uh, the, the two things that are described in the first half and the second half of the verse are not mutually exclusive. They could both exist in the same person. So then that raised a question in my mind of could they be sequential? And I think that is the connection. I will submit to you that all of our actions except for involuntary ones like breathing and when the doctor taps your knee with that special triangular hammer and your, your foot, you know, bounces up. All of our voluntary actions start in our mind. Action begins with a thought. So when the verse says, one with a perverse heart, as we've described above, one with a perverse mind won't find goodness, but the one who is duplicitous with his tongue. See, the first is about what's going on in the mind. The second, duplicitous with his tongue, now we've translated that into a specific evil action. The actual words are now coming out. The action is that the person is proactively talking, and that will cause the person to fall into the evil that we just talked about. So there seems to be a sequential increase in the chain of thought to activity, which leads from won't find goodness to will fall into evil. So the path, once you start it, is a very slippery slope. And you start with not finding good consequences and then continuing down once it becomes more action-oriented now the person is falling into evil. Okay, 
Any questions on that verse? Okay, so let's move on to Proverbs chapter 17, verse 21. I think we have time for one more verse. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 21. One who begets a fool has done so to his sorrow, and the father of a degraded person will not rejoice. One who begets a fool has done so to his sorrow, and the father of a degraded person will not rejoice. What kinds of questions might we ask about that verse? One who begets a fool has done so to his sorrow, and the father of a degraded person will not rejoice. Ah, Linda, thank you. How do you beget a fool? <laughs> Very good question. How do you beget a fool? And then I might ask how the first half works. So why has a person who begets a fool done so to his sorrow? Seems like begetting a fool leads to sorrow. <clears throat> yeah, why does that happen? Good, Mona, thank you. And then in the second half, it says the father of a degraded person won't rejoice. Well, why is that? And Laurie and Terry, yeah, why does anyone want to beget a fool? I mean, nobody would probably choose that. Yeah, I think I'll have kids and I want them to be fools. And, and then finally, well, what's the difference between the first half and the second half? Because they sound really similar. So we've talked before about fools. And I'll suggest here that a fool is a person who is operating on the basis of their emotions rather than their intellect. And generally speaking, the outcomes, that is the consequences that a fool gets, won't be pleasant. I mean, there could be a certain chance occurrence of a good outcome. Uh, from a financial standpoint, investing in a lottery ticket is a foolish thing to do. But some person still wins. Now, they may say, oh, yeah, that was a really smart thing I did to buy that lottery ticket. And the answer would be no, it wasn't. It still was a lousy investment choice. The fact that the person won was an accident. It wasn't based on good thinking. So even if they win, they still made a foolish investment. They just got lucky. So, you know, in the world of actions and consequences, yeah, the fool may get, you know, a, a, a chance good outcome here or there. But generally speaking, the consequences they're going to get won't be pleasant because they're operating on the basis of their emotions, which by definition is going to cause them to make mistakes because they're not seeing reality. And so they're going to stumble around and, you know, mess up in life. So why would a person who gives birth to a fool experience sorrow? Now, I would point out that it's important to remember that as far as I can tell, the verse is not saying that when the child comes out of the womb, it is immediately a fool. It is about one who begets a fool. In other words, one who has offspring who 
an offspring who is a fool. Because there's a whole lot of learning that's going on in those early years, and parent has a lot of, of influence on that. Ultimately, everybody has free will, and you know, uh, um, Isaac had both Jacob and Esau, so there are no guarantees. But certainly, we have the opportunity for influence. Now, uh, parents get great satisfaction from watching their children grow up and have adult lives and families of their own. I mean, raising children, if you think about it, it's one of the biggest investments that most people will ever make. If you think about all the time and all the resources and all the money and education and school and hobbies and all the things that, you know, parents do for their kids, that's probably the biggest investment that most people make. To watch that investment become successful and grow and have those children grow up and become responsible adults and take over, uh, make responsible contributions to society and get married and have children that they care for and build loving families around, that is a source of great satisfaction to a parent. By contrast, one who invests time and effort into raising a child and then the child becomes a fool, well, the parent has to live with that their entire life. And parents emotionally relate to their children. So if the children operate foolishly, it's a reflection on the parents, even if that's only in the parent's mind. Now, it can also be an external social factor, you know, of what the parents' friends or the society says about the parents who raised a fool. I mean, who would want to be known as the parents whose son turns out to be an axe murderer? I mean, that would be a horrible thing. It's you know, even though the, the, the son grows up and has free will, you know, one way or the other, it's going to be a reflection on the parents. And even if, if, uh, even if their, their friends are empathetic, I mean, just the, uh, the internal sorrow that they themselves will face, you know, looking at all those years of investment in raising that child and, and watching that investment be, you know, be wasted it's going to bring huge sorrow to someone. Um, now, Rebenu Yona and um, Linda, I saw your question. What does a degraded uh, person mean? Hang on just one second, um, and we'll, uh, we'll get to that. Mona, you said a we'll, we'll, person will perpetuate that uh, to his children. Yeah, the, you know... Um, family dysfunctions and other problems tend to roll down through the generational hill. Uh, and so unless one uh, generation of parents steps in and essentially stops the flow, if you will, uh, of that problem, it will continue to manifest itself uh, over and over and over. Uh, so a, a, you know, a person uh, begets and raises a child who turns out to be a fool uh, a fool gets married and has kids, raises kids who are fools, and on and on and on. Hopefully, somewhere along the way, uh, something positive will happen. And yes, Lori and Terry, till you study Torah, and then hopefully that will have the effect of, you know, bringing that person back in line with reality, and they can start um, raising kids who are, you know, raised in ways of being a thinker, 
uh, and making decisions based on consequences and an analysis of reality uh, and those kinds of things. Now, the Rabbeinu Yonah takes a slightly different tack on this. He identifies the fool as a person with a flawed character. And when that part of his character is displayed, it causes his father deep disappointment. Okay, so uh, the, the, the fool in that aspect is one with a flawed character. And that's going to come out, you know, in some action that the person does or something. And that when the father sees that, it causes deep disappointment to him because he wishes his son wouldn't operate that way. And in the second half, the Rebbeinu Yonah identifies a degraded person as one who lacks wisdom and intelligence. So he won't perform evil deeds. So he's not so much a sorrow to his father, but when the father looks at having to leave all of his estate to the degraded son, a son who lacks wisdom and intelligence, he, he himself, the father, can't enjoy the acquisitions that he's made. I mean, he's worked hard all his life to, you know, build up his family and maybe a family business or maybe some wealth and whatever. And he turns around and sees, you know, and I'm going to hand it all over to this kid who doesn't have wisdom and intelligence and the smarts to be able to, you know, do something positive with it. Um, so he won't rejoice. He won't rejoice, according to Rabbeinu Yonah, as I understand his interpretation, he won't rejoice in the actual acquisitions that he's made. He won't be able to enjoy his wealth because he realizes that it's going to go to someone that doesn't have wisdom and intelligence. So what is the verse telling us overall? I think it's pointing to the importance of raising a child in wisdom and knowledge and understanding and character development because that's the best thing for the child and it also avoids negative consequences for the parents in the long run. Now, uh, Rabbi Moskowitz has uh, shared in the past, you know, there are two ways you can raise a child. You can raise a child to obey authority you know, and you tell him, do this, do that, come in by this time, do this thing. And that will work for a while, as long as, you know, you're bigger than they are, or you somehow hold a bigger stick over them, whatever the stick happens to be, you know, whether it's literally a stick or control of money or resources or, you know, cutting their allowance or whatever. But if that's all they learn, then once they get out from under the parents' authority, what happens? The other alternative is the rate to raise the child to be a thinker. Now, when you raise a child to be a thinker, you teach them how to analyze situations, but you also have to accept as a parent that they may make different choices than you do in life. And that is part of what you have to accept when you teach them to be a thinker that you give them the skills and you give them the tools and then you have to step back and say, okay, go fly. And, you know, obviously you don't, if you can, you structure it so that they get the opportunity to feel the experience of consequences of their own decisions within certain limits where it won't be fatal, 
uh, or really um, you know, life-changing, but a little bit at a time so that they get to experience the consequence of their own behavior. So by the time they get to be an adult, you know, they're making their own decisions and, and you're fine with that because you taught them the skill set. But they may choose in different ways or other a different kind of life. And that is one of the things that you get when you um, teach your children to be thinkers. So, um, and Mona, yeah, teaching them Torah from the time they get up in the morning till they go to bed at night. Yes, um, and you also have to take into account how much can the child take in because uh, kids need to play because that's a part of their learning and they need to be able to do you know other things. Uh, so th there's a balance. And yes, but absolutely setting the example because the kids will be able to see much more clearly and will operate much more on the basis of what they watch us do as parents than what we tell them. Uh, so it, and that becomes a real, uh, I guess, built-in almost enforcement of our own integrity. Because if we're going to say it, we better be able to live it. Uh, I once heard a, um, a self-development speaker, a uh, motivational self-help speaker, who made the statement, and I, I appreciated the fact that he did. It was to the effect of, I'm not going to tell you or teach you anything that I don't do myself. Uh, and there's a lot of integrity in being able to say that, that you know what I say and what I do are exactly the same thing. And people and kids pick up on that real quick. So, yes, Linda, it's not do as I say and not as I do. It's, uh, I better be consistent first. And then I can chat with the... Uh, uh, with the child about it. Um, so there's a very interesting story about uh, Gandhi uh, that a, um, a woman came to him with her, I think, like 13-year-old son. And she had a request and she, she was able to get an audience with him. And... Gandhi said, you know, what can I do for you? And she said, I want you to tell my son to stop eating sugar. And he said, um, come back, and I forget the time period, but it was like, uh, you know, six weeks from now. And so she left. And she came back six weeks later with her son. And she, I'm guessing, reminded him of um, what, you know, she wanted. I want you to tell my son to stop eating sugar. And Gandhi turns to the 13-year-old or whatever-year-old boy it was and says, don't eat sugar. And assuming the period was, was six weeks or whatever it was, the woman said to him, well, why did you just tell him that the first time? Why did you make me, like, leave and come back? And Gandhi says, because six weeks ago, I ate sugar. And in order to, as you see the point of the story, in order to be able to turn around and tell the young man not to do something, he felt that he also shouldn't do that. Otherwise, he would be inconsistent. So, okay, any other questions or comments on that? 
So thank you all for joining, and uh, we'll look forward to hopefully having you uh, join together uh, again uh, the first Sunday in March. Thanks so much, and everyone have a uh, great week and a good rest of the month.